Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. A chance encounter, a collision of worlds, and a night they will never forget. I'm Kevin Strasser, and I'd like you to meet Jem, Ari, and Lyra, the stars of my latest single, The Runaways, available now on Spotify. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and it's time for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday, podcastone.com, Apple Podcasts, and of course now free on Spotify as well. Be sure to subscribe and check out the show every single Thursday with new episodes. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody in the U.S. has a great 4th of July weekend, and my thanks to our sponsor, who made some killer Trunk Nation stickers for me. That, of course, Goodies Headache Powder. Check out their new product, Goodies Hangover. There's Fast and there's Goodies Fast, and you can get Goodies products wherever you get your medicinal needs. And also, you can, of course, get them on Amazon. And be sure to check out Goodies Hangover, goodiespowder.com, for more information on all of their fine products. So a uh, quick little open here because we've got a long podcast for you. Coming up first, producer Bo Hill Produced records for Warrant, Winger, Rat, and countless others. A great conversation with Bo. I always love talking to the producers and the behind-the-scenes folks. And we will get into uh, a chat with him coming up very, very shortly. We'll open this week with that. And then second will be Adrian Vandenberg, the former Whitesnake guitarist. Adrian has once again fired up a band simply bearing his last name, Vandenberg. You may remember if you're... An old school, early 80s MTV person. You might remember Burning Heart, which was a semi-hit back in the day. Adrian had been working as a painter, uh, doing like, not not like painting houses, <laughs> doing like fine artwork. And also had a band called Vandenberg's Moon Kings the last uh, few years. And now has decided to just go back 
to using his own last name and doing something very much in the spirit of the 80s, and you'll hear from him all about that. So Bo Hill, legendary producer first, Adrian Vandenberg second on this week's podcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, where I'm most active, at Eddie Trunk, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, all just at my name, and eddietrunk.com, of course, is the official online home. So just real quick open from me here as uh, we get you a couple interviews. It's a lengthy one this week, so going to get out of the way and let the interviews take over. Enjoy. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have, it's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Okay, as I mentioned, two interviews for you this week. We get started first with producer Bo Hill. After that, you'll hear from guitarist Adrian Vandenberg. But first, my conversation with Bo Hill about some of the great records he produced and some great behind-the-scenes stories about those records. He's first on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Enjoy. Bo, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thank you, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. Um, so I guess before we get into your history and some of the old, older stuff that you've done, which, and records I'd love to ask you about and bands you worked with, I'd love to ask you about. Let me ask you what you do these days. Let's get to the current times for Bo Hill, because I know most recently your name came on my radar again from our mutual friend, Mark Schenker. And I know you remixed the kicks album, blow my fuse, which you originally did not produce. So you're still in the game to some degree, mixing and doing some production work, huh? Yeah. Um, I'm primarily just, just mixing and it, uh, it, it came about, it's sort of a weird cottage industry. My, uh, my wife several many years ago was bugging me to put up a website and I was going, Oh man, I, you know, I just don't want to do that. That just, it just didn't, it kind of made my skin crawl a little bit. And, but anyway, I, I gave in after a while and then all of a sudden I started getting contacted by bands from around the world that I had never heard of, never met, never spoken to. They just, they reached out through via the website and said, you know, Hey, we've got, we're having some troubles with this particular song. Could you help us out? Or could you mix it for us or what have you? And I said, sure. And so one, then they went back and told their friends that were in bands and then they contacted me. And then before I know it, I've got this unintended consequence of putting up my website. And now all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm mixing at five o'clock in the morning and, uh, and I keep doing it because I just love doing it. Was there a time, Bo, where you completely checked out of the business? Did you completely drop out of the music industry at any point? Well, may, yeah, maybe for a, li- for a little while there was. Um, and, then, and then this happened. I mean, you know, I've always had my, uh, my, my big toe in, if you will. 
Um, but you know, I've, I have certainly over the, the course of, of years, you know, I've bought and sold a couple of other businesses and done some things, you know, to keep me busy and keep things moving forward. But, uh, you know, music and mixing primarily these days is truly my passion. You know, the production aspect of making records now is, as you know, a million miles away from where it was back in the day. Um, but, you know, right now it's a it's labor of love that I just enjoy doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you said you're more on the mixing end of it versus the production side. Of course, you know, back in the in the 80s with all these records and bands that you had worked with, you were doing it all. You were producing um, as well. Why why did that end of it sort of uh, go away for you? And why did you gravitate more towards the mixing stage versus producing? Well, it was it's primarily uh, uh, monetary monetarily driven uh most bands can't afford to have a producer let alone afford to go into a proper studio so a lot of a lot of guys are in the digital universe now you know and they make records in their garage or in their basement or wherever they can and then at the end of the day you know they can still have a little bit of budget left over to you know have somebody like me come in and, uh, you know, put the final touches on it. Is it difficult? Because I have a lot of friends that mix and produce, but and they'll tell me when they're brought in just to mix something, it can be difficult if the stuff wasn't produced well or recorded well initially, that it can be a real nightmare and it can be almost impossible to work with sometimes. Do you run into that, or do you sort of vet that out before you agree to mix something now? Um, I, I kind of vet that out, and and I'll be the first one to. Uh, if somebody sends me a song, and if it's either so poorly recorded or if it's just you know garbage in, garbage out, if my name's going to go on it, uh, I would just as soon you know send the project back and just with deepest regrets and say, hey, I'm really sorry, but I don't I don't think that that uh, that this is up my alley, and. Uh, and then kind of beg off that way. Mm. Where, Bo, where did it all start for you? I mean, for many people, myself included, the name Bo Hills first started r- reaching prominence for me as a as a young rock fan when I would see your name on the back of the Rat albums, especially Out of the Cellar, which was such a huge record. But obviously your career started prior to that. You were a musician yourself, right? Where, where was the very beginnings and the, the very seeds of being in the music industry and you cutting your teeth? Well, um, okay. If it, depending on how far back you want to go, my, uh, my initial tease, I guess, if you will, with the industry was, um, I obviously played in bands all through high school and junior high. And, uh, my, my band played, this would have been the year after Woodstock. Now I'm aging myself. Uh, the, uh, uh, there was a a little kind of semi-regional pop festival called the Lubbock Pop Festival. And long story short, there were a couple of guys, I guess, kind of scouting around from California and they heard my band and they liked it. And we started talking and they said, yeah, listen, we've got a, 
uh, an engineer friend of ours that we'd like to bring in and, and uh, come to Dallas and record your band. I said, wow, that sounds, that sounds great. Who's the engineer? And they said, oh, it's a guy named Keith Olson. Mm-hmm. And that I know that I know you know a lot about Keith. Yeah, and who sadly and just so passed away. He came yeah. out. He, yes, he did. Yeah. And uh, so he came out and recorded my band when I was sixteen, I think. And he was a staff engineer at Sound City. And then uh, he and I became friends. And then, you know, over the years, uh, he invited me out a few times. And then my band, uh, we changed a couple of members, went out to and moved to California because we were, we were such geniuses back then. <laughs> and, um, and Keith was tremendously helpful. And, you know, he always uh, welcomed me to come and hang out with him at Sound City. And, you know, and I was there for a lot of records in his early days, uh, Dominic Triano and, uh, and, you know, guys like that. And then the drummer that I was working with at the time was a guy named Gary Hodges. And then when, when we broke that band up, Gary went on with Keith to be the drummer for Buckingham Knicks. Oh, I see. (laughs) And, uh, and I went on to, uh, to make a failed attempt at uh, graduating from college. <laughs> so, Wait, and what was, was the band? Bo, what was the band? Did the band have any success? Would would we know any of the your early bands? You wouldn't know. No, you wouldn't know any of the early stuff. And then when I moved to Colorado, I got a I got a job at a small jingle studio called Applewood. And, you know, and I started out cleaning toilets and getting people coffee and taking out the trash and eventually kind of worked my way up to a senior engineer and started recording my own music again. And since Keith was the only guy I knew in the, in the business, I recorded, I don't know, five or six songs and I sent them to Keith. And at this point, Keith was really really had a huge name for himself and he was managed by, um, Oh my God. Who's the guy that manages the Eagles for a million years? Irving Azoff. Irving. Right. So Irving Azoff and Bob Buziak, uh, had frontline management and Keith was one of their clients. So Keith played my demos for, uh, Irving and Irving said, "Wow, this is really this is really good." And he said, "Fly him out here." And so I flew out, and this is going to sound like a fishing story, but it's absolutely true. Um, Bob Buziak and Keith took me to six record companies in one day, and. I think it was, well, I mean, no, it was largely because of Irving's endorsement and Keith's involvement, but I had six offers in one day. Wow. To, to do, to put a band together, I mean, to get signed. And so long story short, we signed to, uh, Columbia and I didn't have a band. I mean, it was just, 
me and some local musicians that were working, you know, off hours in the studio. And so Keith was going to produce and he brought in Mike Baird, who went on to be the drummer for uh, Journey, I think, and uh, John Pierce uh, on bass. And then I brought in the guitar player that played most of the demo stuff with me, uh, David Zajek, and another local friend, uh, Larry Stewart. And so that formed the band Airborne, the first band Airborne. And we released the record on uh, on Columbia, and that's how it started. So you, you, like a lot of producers, started out attempting to be the guy in the band and be a, a musician and be on the stages and on the record jackets. And then it seems like all of the producers that I talk to kind of start that way. And then there's a, a turning point where they say, you know what? I'm going to go behind the scenes. I'm going to be the guy behind the console, uh, not the guy out front, but I'd rather work at the creative process of producing records than being the star of a band. When did that, that's always a crucial uh, point, uh, fork in the road. When did that happen for you? It actually, it happened before airborne. The, uh, I knew very early on that I wanted to, uh, to be a producer. As a matter of fact, at age 11, I went to my mom and I said, I know what I want it, what I want to be when I grow up. And she said, what? And I said, well, I don't know what they call it, but I want to make records. And because I didn't know what they called it. Mm-hmm. And so every, all the decisions that I was making, uh, were directed towards being able to break through in some way. And at the time when we were doing Airborne, you know, the business was in a huge, huge, um, uh, it was changing radically. And so I started seeing things like, you know, bands were producing themselves and bands were writing their own material and publishing themselves and things like that. And so I started thinking, okay, since no one knows me from a knothole to work in the studio, Maybe we can go this other route, and maybe I can I can meet some people and network and what have you through the artist route, and that's that's kind of how that went. I, I never really I, I liked the idea of producing for several reasons. Number one, I got to work on lots of different types of material as opposed to playing you know the same five hit songs for the next forty five years. And, you know, and I also kind of liked sleeping in my own bed rather than sleeping on a tour bus. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that, but that just, that wasn't my cup of tea. And I can also produce until I'm as old as I am. And I can keep doing it as long as I want to. And, you know, some artists, some guys in bands can continue to play and perform and be very successful, but a lot of them can't and don't. And so just from a longevity point of view, I wanted to, I wanted to um, give myself some more flexibility. I wanna, that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, I want to tell the audience. So Bo Hill 
albums that he has worked on to date have sold almost 50 million copies. So needless to say, the producer thing certainly worked out for you. But some of the bands and records you probably have in your collection that Bo produced includes, of course, Rat, uh, Kicks, Winger, Warrant, Twisted Sister. The list goes on and on. And Bo was also a part of the formation of Interscope Records, which I want to touch on as well. Well, in the interest of time, I could talk to you for hours, but in the interest of time, I'm going to have to jump around a little bit. And I'd like to get right into some of the bands that you worked with. Of course, none more prominent on your roster than Rat. And I'm wondering how Rat first got on your radar as a younger producer and and how you uh, what you thought about them and your experiences in working with them, predominantly starting off with their huge album out of the cellar. Oh, great question. Okay, um, without getting too in the weeds with the with the setup, uh, Doug Morris, the president of Atlantic Records, his secretary called me at my Hovel apartment in. Uh, I was actually living in Hoboken, New Jersey at the time, and she said, "Hey, would you uh, have a moment to talk to Doug on the phone?" And I was just like, "Absolutely! Are you kidding?" And uh, so Doug picked up the phone. And he said, "Hey, listen." Are you? Do you have a couple of days that you could go to California with me? Because I want you to look at this band, and if you'll produce them, I'm going to sign them. And I went, okay, who is it? He said, Rat. I had no idea who Rat was. And so I said, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. And and we flew to uh, out to L.A. together. And, you know, and I was I was naively sitting there going, oh, man, you're going out with the president of, of Atlantic. This is going to be a great first class trip. And, and uh, Doug sat in coach with me. Swear, oh, really? That didn't happen. Oh, wow. yeah. Back in the glory days of Atlantic, I would I would have expected you to say you took the private charter. <laughs> Well, you know, we certainly could have, you know, we could have flown on the Warner jet, but for some reason, um, Doug didn't want to go there. And, um, and I fully expected to fly and coach by myself, but then he sat with me the whole time and we chatted all the way out. It was, it was quite great. (laughs) And, uh, we went to the Beverly theater, I believe that night. And, uh, I believe it held about 2,000 people. The place was completely packed, just went absolutely batshit crazy over this band rat. And so I, I stood there and watched everybody losing their mind, and I, and I Doug turned around to me and said, so what do you think? And I, and I said, absolutely, I'll do this. And that was kind of how it started. Now, at that point, Rat had an EP out. They had already done an independent album. You did the major label debut. What, what were your What were your experiences like working with them in the studio? And what was it like, you know, uh, uh, capturing them, uh, you know, recording? Because the thing about the Rat records, to me, see, I, I think Rat in a lot of ways is a bit underrated. I, I think they deserve to be in that same conversation, you know, with Motley Crue and some of the other bands that came out of that scene. And sometimes they really aren't. And maybe some of that is their own fault because of the years of changes and dysfunction or what hap- has happened since. But when you listen to their records, especially the ones you did, they, they still hold up song for song. It's there. The, the, the videos, the amount of hits they had sonically, what the record sounds like which is a big part of what you had to do with that 
so, so to me, I, I think in some ways they're, they're, they're underrated when people look back on that era of rock. What are your thoughts on that? And what was it like recording them? Well, um, <clears throat> full disclosure, uh, the guys from rat wanted, uh, Tom Allen to do the record, which is fair enough. Cause I had no track record. They didn't know me from a knot hole. Who the hell's Bo Hill? And it was Doug that went to rats manager, Marshall Burl, uh, nephew of Milton Burl and, and said, uh, this guy's doing your record or I'm not signing the band. And so that, that kind of is how the whole thing began. And, you know, it was a love hate relationship with those guys. Um, and I, I certainly had to earn, earn their trust to whatever degree I ever got it. And, you know, and they, they really made me work for it. And again, I, I have no hard feelings about that because they should have. I, you know, how did they know if, what I was going to do or what I wasn't going to do? And, you know, it was when we would go into pre-production, which is kind of how, how I, I did it. I mean, I really made the record in pre-production rehearsals so that when we went to the studio, it was kind of, it was more just documentation than trying to, you know, fix the world and fix the songs. I mean, I always thought, well, if we don't, we're not ready to go in the studio. If we don't know what the hell we're doing, we shouldn't be wasting time and money in the studio trying to figure it out. And when, when we were in pre-production and I would make a suggestion, rightfully so, you know, I, I would normally, I would get at least some degree of pushback on almost every single thing that I said. And, you know, and it was just one of those challenges that I had, I just had to get past it and figure out a way that I could, uh, get the most out of them and get the most out of me, uh, in a, in kind of a challenging situation. Well, I mean, it's no secret and, and anybody that looks at the track record of that band knows there's been a ton of over overhaul and changes. And right now the band is currently constituted as just Steven and Juan. Warren is not part of it anymore. There's been a lot, you know, right. I've, I've, I've had friends that have managed them and been in and out and there's been a lot of, um, you know, push pull with that band, right. You know, constantly, it seems their, their whole history, it's sounding like even back then in their earliest days working with them, it was pretty much even happening then. Would that be accurate? That would be absolutely 100% accurate. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot. Okay. My, my perception is, and I'm only using perception to be polite, uh, is that, there is always a certain degree of conflict uh, internally within the band. And I think a lot of it was, was song writer driven. So without specifying who, I mean, everybody in the band thought they were the best writer and everybody else in the band was absolute crap. And so the, every record that I did with them, I always wound up pissing somebody off because it was up to me to pick the songs. And I, I mean, I knew somebody's going to be mad at me because I'm not going to pick their song. 
And so, so that was sort of the, the backdrop of every single record that we did. And was that and driven? Then, you know, was that driven over? Well, over let it. me let me jump in there real quick, though, because that interesting point about that. We songwriting is always a huge, huge uh, splinter for a lot of bands. But it was it driven over ego of having the credit or was it driven over the business of having the publishing i don't know what their business was set up like you know as as you well know some bands are equal no matter who writes and some you don't get anything unless you're a writer so do do you think a lot of that at the time was driven over control of money or was it just over posturing both both yeah both and i and i and yes and i know that for a fact so um, you know, because the disparity was pretty was pretty apparent, and um, you know, certain guys in the band they weren't they weren't shy about flaunting it. So, you know, after a while, it became it became a real source of of irritation, and it was something. It was one of the things about working with Rat that I dreaded every single time was trying to keep peace in the family and do my job and select the material that I thought was going to um, represent the band the best. So it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of an issue. When you first heard round and round, did you know that it was going to be this enduring song that as we sit today and the year 2020 is being featured in a insurance commercial, even though it's not your recording, it's a re-record clearly. But did you know that it was going that that it was going to be the, a song that had that sort of quality to it? No. And as a matter of fact, it was one of the songs that I struggled with the most on the record. And I, without getting too technical about it. When the when the band played the song, it went da 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 da, da well, round and round, and it had that giant hole in it, that big rest, which bugged me because the the song had a good energy level, and every single time that they went to that break, it pulled the energy down, getting ready to go into the chorus, and it made me crazy, and so I and I. And I lobbied like crazy. Hey, guys, let's do this in that hole. Nope, won't do it. Let's do this in that hole. Nope, that's a bad idea. Let's do this. Are you crazy? Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, they, they summarily shot down every single thing that I thought I could use to propel the energy up into the chorus rather than down into that break. And so I got in the habit of going into the studio quite early in the morning just by myself. <laughs> and because it, sometimes the chaos level was just a little bit more than I could deal with. And it couldn't, and I just couldn't be very creative. The way that I make a record, when you try an idea, the idea always sucks until it doesn't. And you have to have that space to be able to experiment and try all the things that won't work to get you to the thing that will work. If you kind of understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And it was during one of those sessions that I got this weird idea of doing the reverse echo. And maybe I could artificially fill in that hole mm -hmm. and maybe I could sell that to the band since it wasn't, I didn't really change anything. I j used what was existing and I just, presented it in a different way. And initially, 
it was met with tremendous skepticism. You know, the guys were, were like, what, what was that? Something happened. Something's wrong. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, let's, let's live with it for a little while and see what it, what it does. And I didn't think that was going to be a single at all. And the, and the way that it became a single, and again, this is not a fishing story, Doug Morris's son, Walter, uh, had heard the record, and he was n- nine years old at the time, and he was wandering around the house going, and, and that was it. So if Walter, nine years old, <laughs> who'd heard the whole record, latched onto that one little piece, <laughs> Doug turned around and said, that's your single. And I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. That's not the best song in the record. He said, I don't care. That's your single. <laughs> and that's how the president happened. of the label's kid is humming it at nine years old. That's how the big decisions get made. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that's that. That's how that big decision got made. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to again, just in the interest of time, because we'll, we'll do more at another time. Because uh, I, I only have till sure. the top of the hour, and I want to talk to you about so much, and we could do the whole. I'm sure the whole show on Rat alone. But I want to move on to another band from the '80s era that you worked with that had great success, and of course, their principal songwriter and singer is no longer with us, unfortunately. And that's Warrant, and uh, and Janie Lane is, of course, who I'm talking about is their singer. I got to ask you about Warrant because. And you're the guy that could clear this up. I had heard, I've heard for years now along the wire that on the early Warrant records, and this is not uncommon, a lot of bands have done this, where producers have brought in additional players to play on the records and fill things out and help out, whether it be guitars, vocals, certain parts where the band's just not accomplished enough at their early stages to deliver what the producer wants. Heard that a lot about the first, especially the first Warrant album. Can you, can you comment on that? Sure. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And I'll give you the sequence of events in my reader's digest form. Uh, we were in pre-production in hot, sweaty garage in Burbank somewhere. And we'd been at it for a few days and Eddie Winrick, their manager, came to the to the rehearsal, and I said, hey, I got to talk to you for a second. So we went outside, and I said, look, we're competing with Van Halen and, you know, really accomplished guitar players. And I said, these guys are not quite there yet, and I think that we're going to get our heads handed to us if we get into the marketplace, and we can't compete on that level. So, okay, what do you want to do? So I called a band meeting right then and there. And to the guy's credit, and I really have to give the guys from Warrant all the credit. They could have pitched a fit. They could have fired me. They could have told me to, you know, jump in the lake. But they said, okay. Uh, and, And obviously they were probably very disappointed and they were probably a little bit pissed. But I said, listen, the guy that I want to bring in is the sweetheart of a guy. He's a brilliant guitar player. I've used him on several other records. And, and, and he'll, he'll make this work. And that was Mike Slamer. And so long as you had done short, streets, you had in. done, did, Bo, real quick, you did the streets record, right? Yes, I did. That's where I met yeah. him. 
that because I remember Streets that those records were killer, and I, that's the name I had always heard that it was ghosting on guitar was Mike Slammer. So um, that's that's what I suspected. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and and he was he was so nice and so non threatening to the guys in the band that they wound up becoming friends, and then the guys in the band, to their credit. Uh, hired Mike to give them guitar lessons. And so Mike taught them how to play all that stuff so that when they they went out on the road to do Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking, Rich, you know, they were pretty damn close to the solos that were on the record because Mike taught them. And they were man enough, I should say, and professional enough to go, okay, let's let's put our egos at the front door and let's go do this. And that's how that happened. So did do those guys play on the record at all or is it just solos or did did Slammer do all the guitars? How how did the how did it balance out? Uh all the guitar players played all their parts with the exception of the solos. Okay, and then when Cherry Pie came around, which you also did, which was an even bigger record, at that point were they seasoned enough to do everything or did you still bring some help in at that point? I think uh, Mike helped us out a little bit on that on that record as well. Um, but as I was reminded recently, we had a lot of guest appearances on that record, which have completely slipped my mind. Um, but yeah, I think I think that was I think that was the case on on Cherry Pie. But you know, we had our rhythm, our, our groove down, and everybody knew what their job was and how everything was going to come out in the end. And so I don't remember it as being particularly controversial, at least while we were in the studio and and actually making the record, because everybody was kind of used to that way of working. Yeah, and just for listeners who may find this, you know, shocking or some sort of, you know, scandalous thing, it's really not. It it actually was quite common even going back to the 70s. I mean, I just heard an interview with Jack Douglas talking about uh, doing Aerosmith's Get Your Wings, the second Aerosmith album in 74. And there was, uh, you know, I think it was Dick Wagner he brought in on a couple songs. Uh, I've heard Ezrin talk about doing it on a song on Destroyer for Kiss. So it's not all that unusual it just depends upon how the artist handles it. And in the case of Warrant, it sounds like they were pretty diplomatic about it. Well, you know, one of, one of it's the producer's job. You have got to be able to stand up and make those hard, uncomfortable decisions, um, you know, for the good of your client, for the good of the label, for the good of your own career. And, you know, hopefully you don't have to make too many of those really rough calls, but that goes with the territory, so you have to do it. Bo, I wanted to ask you about Winger a little bit, because talk about a band that got got unfairly killed in the whole 80s sort of backlash. A tremendously talented band, and I, I know their story about how they came together. The, those guys are all friends, especially Kip, who was just on with us recently. But working with those guys, uh, what was your experience like? Well, I, I had known Kip since he was 16 years old, and uh, he used to play uh, on a ton of sessions that I was doing at that jingle studio, Applewood in Colorado. And so, and Kip was tremendously talented even back then, and then he, he went on to uh, expand his horizons to what he is right now. Truly one of the most talented people I've ever worked with in my life. 
Yeah, and and now you worked with Alice Cooper. You did the album Constrictor, and I think that was during Kip's time. Did you? Was he involved in that as well? I don't know. The timeline's a little off for me. Okay, the way that worked was um, uh, I was hired to do that record, and Alice just had uh, a guitar player. Um, we called him Power Bob, uh, Robert Athis, and uh, and so. Alice said, "Can you? I'm going to need a rhythm, rhythm section." So I said, "Okay, I got the guys." And uh, Kip played the record, and Alice loved him. And Alice, being the gentleman that he is, he came to me and he asked my permission if he could ask Kip to join the band. And I said, "Listen, I, I don't have any any uh, control over what Kip does. I'm sure he would love the opportunity to go and play with you." And so that's how that happened. So and and again, I'm just jumping around here a little bit, but these are things I always wanted to ask you about. So you also had a band called Spider, correct? <clears throat> Spider was uh, with Holly Knight, the very right. accomplished writer of everything in the world. Holly quit after that first record, and the band changed its name to Shanghai, and I became Holly Knight, and the band moved to um, Chrysalis Records. And we did one record that failed magnificently on Christmas (laughs) with Bob Rock as the engineer and Bruce Fairburn was the producer. Oh, wow. So because Holly was on my show recently, we had a great conversation and I didn't, I didn't know that you actually replaced her. Uh, Anton Fig was in that band too, right? Yes. Okay. So it was, and it was Anton still in when you did it? Yes. Okay, so and and, uh, it, and was, it was the original Spider Band. Everybody, with the exception of me. Okay, and that band was managed by Bill Coin. Yes. What were your experiences like with Bill, who was you know sort of a you know people said sort of like a PT Barnum type character, especially at that point? I imagine he was still involved with Kiss. Oh, yeah. He had uh, two floors in the. Pan Ocean Building in Manhattan. He had huge staff. Uh, yeah, Bill definitely lived life to the fullest. That's for that's for sure. And uh, and he was he he had uh, Billy Squire and uh, a couple of other groups. So we were the baby 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 band. And yeah, he I- was. He was a trip for sure. <laughs> That's what everybody says. I mean, I met him a couple times before he passed away, but the artists that I've talked to who he managed have all said you know, similar things. I-, I wanted to also ask you about uh, Kicks. One of the guys that was always in my ear saying, you got to talk to Bo, is their current bass player, Mark Shanker, who I know you worked with on this remix of Blow My Fuse, but you did Midnight Dynamite for them. Um, your thoughts on that band? Well, they, they along with D. Snyder and the guys from Europe, they're they're my my very good friends, and uh, I talk to Mark probably once or twice a week, and absolutely love those guys. And um, I've been out to see him a couple of times on the road, and you know, Stephen, he just brings it. That's all I can say. I mean, this guy does not does not disappoint 
and uh, takes it very seriously. And I absolutely just loved working with those guys. I, I don't even know how we had time to make the record because all we were doing was laughing the whole time. <laughs> yeah, they're still a very potent band, and Steve Whiteman is is just uh, seemingly ageless in how much effort and work he puts in to keep him, keeping his voice and himself in shape. It really is a, a great testament to what they do. I'm I'm so glad that they're out there. I mean, it's been a good 10 years now, I think, that they got active again, but it's great to see them out there doing stuff again. Yeah. Well, they were called Funny Money for a million years, and right. I kept fussing at Mark, and I said, man, you guys got to resurrect kicks. And and after probably two or three years of me just driving him crazy, he finally went, and he he was lobbying along with me for the rest of the guys in the band. Look, let's just get past the past. Let's resurrect the uh, franchise, and let's go out as kicks. And I'm so glad they did. And you did an album uh, for Twisted Sister that was originally supposed to be a Dee Snider solo album. It ended up coming out under the name Twisted Sister, and it was sort of the, the wheels were coming off for them at the time, but that was Love is for Suckers. What's your recollection of doing that? Uh, again, uh, working with D. well, you know D. Yeah. A, he's a tremendously smart guy. B, he's an, he is a totally untapped talent. And I loved working with him and loved his sense of humor. And, and it, was, it was just a, a, a pleasant situation for me all the way around, getting to know him and, and his family and, um, and just being a part of that. And I'm, I was really disappointed that the record didn't do better than it did. But as you said, the wheels were beginning to come off, off of the bus genre, uh, genre central. And, you know, timing just wasn't right. Bo, was there an artist, and I always ask when I talk to producers this, is there somebody that you worked with in a record that you produced or an artist you worked with at some capacity where you swore it was going to be big and that they were going to just break through and this was going to be one of the, be one of the biggest things you ever did and it tanked? Like, is there something out there that you would tell people listening that maybe they haven't heard of that you produced or worked on that they should check out that you thought should have went the distance? Yeah, uh, it was an Atlantic act called Black Bambi. And I don't even know if the record was actually released. If it was released, it was released in a, to a very minimal audience. But th- that, was, that was a record that, that I thought we were very excited about. And, you know, there were label and management differences, and so... <clears throat> that thing kind of tore itself to pieces before it ever really had a chance to get out there. Was there anybody in that band that has gone on to other things that we would know? Yeah. Uh, the guitar player, whose real name is Jason Grinstead, changed his name to Jason Hook and oh. joined Five Finger Death Punch. Yeah, well, of course, and did a ton, I know Jason, he did a ton of session work prior to that, too. I mean, bunch, a bunch of pop stuff. I'm, I don't know if you've seen the film Hired Gun. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. 
If you get a chance and you have Netflix, pull that up. And Jason is a producer on that. It's a great film about these guys who are basically hired guns, whether it's you know, working for pop stars or whatever behind the scenes and great interviews. And, and Jason's a big part of that. So uh, I definitely uh, I have to hit him up and see if he's got a copy of that record. Last thing before we run out of time in the few minutes we have, you were at the start and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, a founder of Interscope Records. Tell me about your your side of you know developing that label. Okay, um, it was Memorial Day weekend, nineteen. I want to say nineteen ninety. Irving picked up the phone and he called me, and he called Jimmy Iovine, and he said, "You guys want to come out to the beach and have a meeting?" So we did, and this was what was Irving's label called? Revolution or Republic Records or whatever. I don't know. He's had a anyway, few. Anyway, I don't of remember. Them. Yeah, but but he was he wanted to start a new label, and he wanted to make it sort of producer driven, and he wanted Jimmy and I to come on board and uh, with him as partners, and so we said, okay, great, and then we were having meetings, and you know everything was moving along, and then <clears throat> Jimmy met Ted Fields at a par- uh, party or a fundraiser or something like that and they were talking and jimmy jimmy said yeah i'm getting ready to start my own label and ted said well that's that's great i'm starting my own and uh and then somehow they got around to talking about money and uh, and jimmy said yeah you know we're, we're going to get funded with 10 million and and ted said oh that's really that's excellent well i'm putting my own money in and i'm funding it with 200 million and i've already got a floor picked out in one of my buildings on on uh wilshire boulevard that he owned and so then i got the call from jimmy and he said okay look you can you can stay with this with this record idea uh sub labeling to atlantic but i'm leaving and i'm going to be with ted because it's not corporate money it's his private money and he's going to have 20 times the funding that we have so he will be able to buy the absolute best of the best of the best that's what i'm going to do and so i thought about it for a couple of days and, and then i said okay that sounds that makes sense so let's go do it and we did and then i felt bad about what we were doing to uh, that we were backing out of the deal with Atlantic. So at the end of the day, that's kind of why we, we wound up doing a, a partnership and a distribution deal through Atlantic involving Interscope. Great conversation with Bo Hill. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Love that behind the scenes stuff. And I could have done easily a lot more time with him, but again, the, the interviews you hear originated on my Sirius XM radio show. So We're subject to commercial breaks in certain times with the schedule and the calendar, but it was great to spend that time with Bo Hill. Okay, we'll come back and be joined by Adrian Vandenberg next on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Interview number two this week on the podcast is with guitarist Adrian Vandenberg, who just released a new album under the name Vandenberg. That album is called 2020, and here's Adrian to tell us all about it. Adrian, how are you? I'm doing really well, actually. You know, um, uh, survived the uh, corona stuff, and um, very optimistic about sooner or later being able to tour again, hopefully. 
Adrian, where where are you right now? Well, right now I'm in France. Actually, I'm I'm staying at a friend who recently lost his wife, so um, I'm um, I'm helping him to back on the rails, so to speak. And um, well, the sun is shining here, and um, we got rock in the house, so and wine, so mm. things could be worse. Uh, I'm, I was asking you that question because I'm curious what it's like uh, traveling or being in Europe right now as far as the pandemic is concerned. Have things lightened up? Some of the restrictions lightened up or are things still very much locked down there? Well, it's, uh, actually today, um, even France was, uh, was very strict. Um, and today uh, they send out a message that they're going to loosen up a lot of restrictions. And that goes for quite a number of countries. Um, but yeah, everybody's supposed to be, you know, behaving responsibly and, um, being careful and, um, we'll see how it goes. You know, it's, it's, it's very similar everywhere. Only, um, it seemed like most European countries had, um, were, were dealing a little differently with, um, the situation, but in the end, um, it seems that, um, percentage wise, the numbers weren't that much different, uh, from each other. So, yeah. It's a weird time. Yeah, definitely a weird time for sure. Now, the last time I spoke to you, Adrian, it was at the time you had done a record called uh, Vandenberg's Moon Kings. That was your focus, and that was the project. And now you have uh, brought back the band simply bearing your last name, Vandenberg, which I think a lot of fans here in America would remember from the early to mid eighties, especially with the, with the track burning heart, which was a big song on MTV at the time. Talk about the decision to once again, start up a band under the name Vandenberg. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, my previous band Vandenberg's Moon Kings. We had a great, great run for five years with it, but we were um, pretty much completely limited uh, international touring because the singer has a big farm and he couldn't really stay away for more than two or three days. And then two or three days, he can do a couple of shows in Germany or Belgium or France or whatever, but we couldn't really do any touring. And I really started missing that. And um, uh, the second reason was um, that I really felt a need to go a lot heavier than what I did with the um, Moon Kings. So those two factors put together made me decide to put Moon Kings on ice, so to speak, and um, put together a new lineup. And when, when I found Ronnie Romero willing to, uh, to be involved, that's when I got a shot of inspiration to write the material for this album. And um, I, uh, I tailored it to his vocal capabilities, which are pretty amazing. And um, that, that, that resulted in this record. And I'm extremely extremely excited about it and i'm already starting to write stuff for the next album so that's how it goes well i'll tell you what when i heard it i was excited too because you didn't you definitely tried to give people who were fans of the band vandenberg and into what you guys were doing back 30 35 years ago bring that right down the the the, the pike so to speak i mean you definitely made a new Vandenberg record, but it was very much to me, at least from hearing it about channeling the old spirit of, of the hard rock that you made back in the day. Is that what you were going for to sort of get back to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it, it's just stuff that, um, that comes out of my fingers and my, and my heart naturally when, whenever I pick up a guitar and it's that right, uh, that, that's the stuff that I still love. And I still listen to also listen to new stuff. You know, I also listen to, 
stuff like Kings of Leon or Foo Fighters or uh, Rival Sons or whatever. But um, yeah, this is the stuff that um, that yeah comes out of me very naturally and organically, and I kind of miss this kind of stuff. Um, I'm basically writing a record that that I would run out and buy myself, you know, and that's that's actually what I'm always aiming for because um, otherwise, you know, if you can't please yourself, you can't really hope to please other people with it either. I see you even used uh, the pretty much the old logo on the cover. I have the CD here. You even re- revised revived the old logo, Vandenberg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, I was um, if you remember, maybe um, I used to make very detailed uh, Salvador Dali-style oil paintings in the Vandenberg days for those covers. Um, but these days, you know, since so many people listen uh, to their music on Spotify or on their uh, on their iPhones, and I thought it would be a great reintroduction of, of the band uh, to just put the logo on there because as, as small as, as it is on those little post-temp size um, images on, on, on Spotify and stuff, um, at least the logo is recognizable, you know. So for the next one, I'm actually planning to, uh, you know, to do another Salvador Dali style painting, and um, we'll see how it turns out, you know, uh, on post-stamp size. Did you, Adrian? Even back in the day, did you do the Vandenberg album covers? Was that was that your work? Yeah, it was. Um, I was. Um, I, I went to University of Arts before Vandenberg uh, broke through uh, because I, I never had the illusion that uh, coming out of Holland with the kind of rock that I, I want to play, that I would be able to make a living with it. And, uh, well, little did I know, apparently, because Vandenberg went great for five years, and when I joined Whitesnake at the end of 86, it went through the roof, as uh, as people may remember. And I stayed in Whitesnake for about 13 years, uh, up until um, 1999. So, yeah, those were pretty exciting years yeah i mean i didn't realize until i i was just uh pecking around doing some research of course i know you and, and your career but i didn't realize that it was that long of a run that you were in white snake uh 13 years i didn't realize that it went that long but i guess it did and uh, i just spoke to david the other day as a matter of fact and he still speaks very fondly of you and i know you guys still have a good relationship yeah we do yeah we have a an unusual relationship for this business, especially, you know, and that's probably the reason why uh, we wrote uh, great stuff together, you know, because we have very similar influences, you know, like a mixture of blues and rock and soul and, you know, from Zeppelin, Deep Purple to um, all the way to Free and Paul Rogers' uh, escapades. And so usually when we, when we were not on tour or when we were writing, we usually sat down and David's, um, cinema room, so to speak, and just played records all night from all the new stuff. And we always had this connection. It's like um, David always described me as his uh, illegitimate brother. <laughs> and, and and let me ask you this, Adrian. Speaking of White Snake, and then we're going to go back to the to the Vandenberg record 2020 in a second. But why why I got you talking about White Snake? I always wanted to get the answer from this on you. So from you rather. So. The 87 record, which was Whitesnake's huge breakthrough here in America, was Still the Night and and uh, Crying in the Rain and Here I Go Again and all that. By now, most people know that the band that made that record uh, with John Sykes, uh, Neil Murray, uh, Ainsley Dunbar, all of them were gone 
once the videos came out and the touring started. And when that happened, it was a totally different band. And everybody saw you and Vivian Campbell, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge. But on, I didn't realize this, that on the 87 record, Sykes plays all the guitars except the solo and here I go again, which is you, right? Yeah, that's right. But also um, the, the, the guitars, the, the cleaner rhythm guitars. David uh, asked me at the time to make a new guitar arrangement for Here I Go Again because uh, John Kalodner from Geffen Records um, uh, thought it sounded like, like metal country and western. That's how he described it. And he wanted to uh, to have like a, a, a touch of how I, uh, for instance, played on uh, Burning Heart and that kind of stuff, you know, like, so I was in the back of the studio uh, working on a, on a four-track cassette back on the, uh, to figure out a new guitar arrangement when, when there was a lot of noise in the uh, control room and that was uh, John Sykes and, and, and David arguing about um, the fact that John um, didn't really uh, accept not being in Whitesnake anymore. So it was quite a... Well, wow, so you were. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, this is crazy. Wait, so you were there when they actually broke up? Well, yeah. Apparently, um, David let uh, John Sykes. John Sykes was in England at the time, apparently, and David let uh, John know that that uh, that he thought their cooperation didn't work anymore. And um, apparently, John Sykes uh, didn't accept it, and he flew to uh, United States to the studio where we were in at the time. Keith Olsen's um, Good Night LA studio. So I was working in the back, back room when uh, John Sykes and David were arguing about um, oh my whether not or... Yeah, that was that was quite a historic event, you know, especially looking at it afterwards because at that, at that particular moment, no, nobody could have uh, predicted the immense success of that record. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still really, really proud to have been part of the whole thing, you know, and I just bought like a practice guitar with me, like a like a cheap ass uh, Japanese uh, Stratocaster copy or something. That, and and Keith also David asked me to to pl- to play uh, play the parts on, on on Here I Go Again, and I did on on that shitty guitar. So that was quite um, a strange experience um, to 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 watch that, that song go all the way to no, uh, to number one on um, on, a, on a cheap Japanese guitar, you know. So, so why were you there? Were you there because you was, did, did David already hire you to replace Sykes and you were there or were you there working on something else at the time? What, 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 why were you actually in the studio? Yeah, well, that's a story in itself, exactly. Um, Like you said, um, when John Kalodner, you, you, you are, well, most people are not aware of John Kalodner, but, but as you know, um, he was a pivotal a&R manager in the business. He was involved with Aerosmith. Uh, he had a finger in the porridge, as they speak, with Bon Jovi. And basically every rock band in the 80s had some connection with John Kalodner. So when John Kalodner found out that um, that I got rid of um, the record con- contract I had with Vandenberg, he called me up in Holland and asked if I w- was willing to come over to uh, to LA to talk about the new Vandenberg um, contract. And I said, yeah, of course, you know. So I, I hopped on the plane and Two days later, I was uh, sitting in John Clover's office, and he said, well, um, I, I haven't been completely honest. I actually have two propositions for you. And um, the first one, uh, he said, I would like to form a completely new Vandenberg lineup around you instead of the Dutch guys that you have in the band. I would like to, you know, to, to add some 
top class LA musicians um, and, 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 and take it from there. And I said, okay, you know, well, uh, let me think about it. And um, the, I said, well, the second one is, I would really like you to join Whitesnake. And that was not a surprise to me because David asked me two or three times before um, to join Whitesnake, um, actually right before the very first Vandenberg album came out. Um, David asked me to join Whitesnake, but I couldn't do it, even though I was a huge Whitesnake and Coverdale fan, of course. Um, but Vandenberg just recorded the first album, and, and it was all looking really good. And also, I wanted to, you know, to prove something myself instead of being, you know, the next guitar player in Whitesnake, because even by that time, White, Whitesnake went through guitar players and lineups faster than most people go through in, through their underwear, you know? <laughs> right, right. So, um, right. This was <laughs> so I thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, if I, if we're going to put put together a completely new lineup for Vandenberg, I'm never going to be able to find a singer like David, you know, He's one of my all-time favorite singers. And so it was not a difficult decision. And then John uh, asked me if if I wanted, uh, you know, uh, to do that new guitar arrangement and play the guitars on uh, Here I Go Again. While I was there, I said, yeah, okay, but no commitment yet because I really have to think about it for one of the days, you know. So at the moment when, when I was playing that stuff, uh, I wasn't, I hadn't yet decided to to be like uh, like in Whitesnake, but uh, since David and I got got along so well, um, we had an immediate connection. I thought, you know, um, I, I I haven't I didn't accept the offer two or three times before. Uh, let's not be a stubborn, stupid Dutch guy and and finally go for it, and we'll see where it goes. You know, because at that point uh, it was just David and me. We were basically a country western duo, so to speak, and. Yeah. Um, then later on, you know, Rudy and Tommy came in and Vivian. And Rudy and Tommy already knew because uh, the first tour with Vandenberg was support in, in the United States was supporting Ozzy Osbourne. And Tommy was uh, the drummer for Ozzy at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, later on, when Vandenberg started headlining, uh, Rudy was a, a support, a support in Vandenberg with White Riot because it was right before they uh, broke. True. Uh, so we already knew each other. So that was uh, like a very, uh, very big surprise, you know, that we ended up in the same band. How did it work with you and Vivian? Did you know Vivian was going to be added to the lineup? And did did you feel there was chemistry working with him as a, as another guitar player in the band? Well, I didn't know at the time, and um, uh, I was all, all, also uh, always used in all my bands before that. Well, all my bands, <laughs> there were only two bands before that, um, used to being um, in a one-guitar band, and it was not because of um, any other reason than um, that I've always been a fan of, uh, at the time, you know, of Cream and Hendrix and uh, Free, that company, those were always in that particular lineup. But at the same time, um, a couple of years before I joined Whitesnake, I was asked to, um, to come and play in Thin Lizzy. And that was actually funny enough before John Sykes uh, joined a little bit later. So we swapped the places twice, actually. And um, and Felizzi, of course, as everybody knows, was a two-guitar band. So uh, that sounded great, too, you know. And um, I did. I only met Vivian before once when he was with Dio. And um, I thought we did great, you know. Um, and, and I thought we had a great chemistry after we got used to playing with each other because Vivian and I were both used to being in a, uh, in a one-guitar band. And I think, you know, I, I only have great memories of the tour. It was such an exciting period. Uh, as everybody knows, it was like 
pretty much the peak period of the 80s, you know. It was rock all over the place. MTV was actually playing music. And uh, there was rock on radio everywhere, you know. This is just a beautiful period. And, and the last thing on this is how did you – how did you guys handle? Because look, I know, I know Sykes and I know David very well, um, and and I love John as a guitar player. He's one of my favorites, and the stuff he did oh, yeah. on that '87 record yeah. is just still to this day mind blowing. When when you guys dug into you know t- tackling "Still of the Night" or "Bad Boys" or any of that stuff on there, how did you work it out between you and Vivian as to who would take what? And was it you know was it style wise was it a challenge for you to play like that, or was that more were you comfortable you know tackling what John had done? Because at that time that record was huge and. Uh, everybody knew those songs, and a lot of the people were coming to see White Snake. I don't think a lot of them even knew it was a different band on the record than they were seeing live because the videos featured you guys as well. But I'm just wondering, from a, a playing standpoint, how you you handled that? Well, yeah, um, I, I played. The, the, uh, Vivian and I sat, sat down together before we started rehearsal, and we kind of split up the solos, you know, and and, and we basically. Uh, went like, uh, which one do you play? Do you, you feel like playing the Still of the Night solo? Or, yeah, I'll do that one, you know. So it, it went very smoothly. And um, for me, um, I wanted to play the solos basically in pretty much my own style, although I have to uh, confess that um, it, it did push me to play faster than I've done before because I've never been like a very fast kind of guitar player. I always went for the melody, as you can hear actually on the solo in uh, Here We Go Again and the stuff that I did with Vandenberg. Uh, so I did get Americanized a little bit, so to speak. Um, and uh, Vivian made the solos his own as well. So and, and live, I don't think a lot of people kind of um, were surprised by the way we, we executed those songs live. And um, it was just one big... Um, bunch of excitement you know the live shows and i mean everybody was screaming and we were running across the stage like a benzerin puppets you know it was just a very very weird time and, uh, and and very exciting and um later on um i realized you know that in some respects um i floated a, bit, a little bit uh too far away from the way i i naturally play um and kind of found um a direction that I normally probably wouldn't have found if if, if I wouldn't have been a white snake for all that period. So I always look at it as a learning experience. Like when we were touring with Steve Vai in 1990, um, Steve and I became really good friends, and we still still are. We still are very regularly in, in touch. And um, of course, you learn from a player like uh, like Steve. And to my surprise, um, a little while ago, um, he wrote me a little mail, uh, like we uh, like we often do, and he said, uh, "What you would you probably never realize that you influenced me as as well." And it was like a very big surprise to me because I thought, mm, "How can I, the player of you know how I play, influence a player like Steve?" And um, so we talked about that, and that, that, that's the funny thing, you know, if you, if you share a stage with world class players like Tommy and Rudy and and, and Steve Vai and and Vivian Campbell and stuff, you always learn from each other, even, even though you're not aware of it. And, and that makes it so beautiful, you know, to, to be in music and to um, to be like a rock and roll gypsy. 
Yeah, yeah, and Steve's a wonderful guy as well. So that's that's really doesn't surprise oh, yeah. me he would say something like that. He's he's a great guy. <laughs> but the the last thing I am just amazed. Yeah. I am the, I want I'm going to talk a little bit more about the, your new record, but I am just amazed that you were there. You witnessed the Sykes Coverdale confrontation and that he flew Sykes flew from England to confront David and there you are on your cheap guitar noodling away. <laughs> taking a solo on yeah. that record I, I adrian i i mean is there anything else you could tell us where like was thing was equipment flying were there punches being thrown like because we know how volatile that is you're one of the only eyewitnesses i've ever heard from what was there <laughs> well i actually i wasn't i was more an ear witness than an eyewitness because i was in the back of the studio and uh as we all know david's got like a serious um a serious volume in his voice, you know, his voice sounds completely studio produced, even when he talks, as you yes, know, you know, he true. sounds like, yes. he's got, he's, he's got, yeah, it like he's got a built-in compressor and, 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 and a built-in reverb and all that stuff. And so, That's so, <laughs> so true. I, those really voices and I, thought, I thought, what the hell is going on there? You know, so I peeked around the door and I thought, oh man, I better stay out of this. So I, I shut the door of my room and, and later on, I found out what was going on. I didn't even know when I heard those voices. I, at that point, I didn't know it was Jan. I, I, I just thought, oh, man, somebody's having a serious argument in there, you know. I, and later on, David told me it was Jan, you know, and that, that they had an argument and stuff. So it was quite an historic um, moment in, in, in rock history. Oh, did John confront you at all? Did, was he like, who's this guy? Was no. anything like that? No. <laughs> No, I, I never met Johnny. He, he, as, as, as we all know, he's a fantastic player, you know. And it's just so weird that um, that when I uh, was asked to, to join Thin Lizzy, uh, like probably about a year or, 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 or so before John joined, um, uh, and then later on um, in Whitesnake, it's the other way around. I mean, it's like, uh, and, and then it's so weird that we never met, you know. It's um, still like to this said, day. He's, he's, an, he's an fantastic fantastic player to, to this day, you know, and as we all know, unfortunately, he hasn't been very active. Um, yeah, I know. I just hope he's going to kind of come, up, come up and blow everybody away with a great record, you know, and the, the funny thing is, you know, as, as you know, and I know, um, um, I got to, I got to know, um, uh, Jake E. Lee very, quite well when we, when Vandenberg was supporting Ozzy for, for like a, a North American tour and I hung out with Jake, um, uh, quite regularly, and the funny thing is, um, Jake and I, when, when I came back with the Moon Kings record about five years ago, exactly around the same time, Jake came back with his um, his, his new band, and, um, yeah, and yeah, and and, and I, I was so happy to, to 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 hear from Jake again, and I thought, man, I can't wait until Sykes comes back comes back with something, and I guess you know a lot of people like us are waiting for that, you know, so I just hope he's gonna going to do it and show up and um, then we get a whole bunch of um, 80s players back back in shape again. It would be great. Yeah, no, I agree. John's uh, John has a record that's been done for like literally eight, seven, eight years. I've heard it, and he just can't Whoa. or hasn't put it out. It's done. It's been done. Even the album cover, everything's been done for six, seven years at least. Wow, but he that's just, weird. 
Yeah, it's uh, I love the guy, but it's wow. it's very very hard to figure out what's going on and uh why he can't get this out. Even I'd love to see him do Blue Murder again. I mean, I love Blue Murder anything. I just yeah. I love his playing. I'd love yeah. to hear him get out there and I love his singing too. I'd love to just hear him do something, oh, yeah. but it's it's very baffling to to kind of Man. figure out um, but we'll we'll see what happens. So anyway, getting back to Vandenberg 2020, which is the new record, it's coming out when in a, in a couple of weeks, right? No, actually, uh, next week the 29th, it's coming out. So I I can't wait. We're actually putting together uh, uh, tomorrow. We're gonna be, uh, put the third track online, um, a song called Skyfall, with a, with a new video. The, the weird thing right now is, as we all know, uh, we couldn't get together to record a video. Right. Uh, so you know, uh, I had to be creative, and I've I, I put together a video with um, the, the the graphic designer who works uh, works very often with uh, Mascot, and we we try to get the best out of it. You know, um, at the same time, it's it's interesting challenge. You know, it, to to have not like uh, four moody looking guys uh, play back to a rock track. You know, so it's completely different thing. But uh, I'm extremely excited about it and i'm aware that everybody says the same thing about a new record you know but for me the ultimate sign is that i've been playing this record non-stop ever since we finished the mix and i'm so extremely happy with having worked with bob marlette the american producer that people know from black sabbath and and, and rob helford and um all, all kinds of great stuff you know alice cooper and we recorded the record in la and and we had a great working situation with bob we recorded it really quickly and in two and a half weeks and uh, bob and i already um, decided that the next album we're going to do together again so everything seems to fall into place in a very organic way to use a fashionable word yeah i'll tell you i, I started playing the track shadows of the night the opening track on the record on my radio show and it's exactly what fans of vandenberg and just good old old school hard rock are looking for and i gotta tell you i was uh thrilled when i saw ronnie romero was going to be the singer because i don't know him at all but he f stepped into some really big shoes doing those recent rainbow gigs having to sing the whether oh, it be Jalen turner whether okay. it be dio whether it be graham bonnet and uh uh, man, he he handled it brilliantly. And my question to you about having Ronnie as your singer, which is you know, a, a great thing, but I've no I've seen his name attached to some other stuff besides Rainbow as well. Is he going to be able to be committed to Vandenberg to be able to tour when things start up again? Oh yeah, that's definitely the plan. Um, as, as you already mentioned, he, he he's done a bunch of things left, right, and center because. Uh, Rainbow, as, as, as uh, most people will know, Richie only wanted, wanted to do a couple of shows every two years or something, you know, and so that, that gave Ronnie uh, quite some time and um, to do other stuff. And he, he sang on, on a couple of people people's records. Um, he's done uh, a European tour with Michael Schenker a couple of months ago before the Corona uh, stuff started happening. Mm. But definitely, yeah, Ronnie is going to tour with us. You know, he, he's the singer of our of our band, and I, I'm really looking. At this Vandenberg as a band, you know, it happens to to bury my uh, to to to, to care, carry my name. But as people will hear on the record, you know, I'm not one of those guitar players who who keeps wheelie wheelie wheeling away uh, for minutes long. Uh, I like my solos to be a part of a song and and present this as a band. And we got a killer lineup, you know. It, I'm I'm so excited about this whole thing that I I'm of course like every musician. Uh, quite disappointed that, that we can't 
go tour as soon as we can. It's just a weird situation, you know. How uh, I'm very curious, like everybody, how it's going to be when, once um, the venues are going to open up again. Are people going to be forced to to keep like a uh, like a six, seven, eight feet different distance, or what is the plan? You know, I I, I, I don't have a clue. It's going to be surrealistic, I think. Yeah, no, nobody really knows, and we're all just waiting to see. I also notice in the credits for the record, uh, you've got Rudy, you've got uh, special guest Rudy Sarzo, who you just talked about, you were in White Snake with, and another good friend, uh, one of my favorite drummers, Brian Tishy, you have uh, credited on the record. Did they yeah. guest on the record? Did they play on some tracks on here? Yeah. Yeah, they play on two tracks of the album, and um, uh, it, it was just great because Rudy, the last time Rudy and I, Rudy Sarzo and I, recorded was in our mutual Medic Eden project uh, with Ron Young singing and Tommy Aldridge drumming in 1994. And Rudy and I have uh, always stayed in touch and, and we have this amazing brotherly soulmate type of friendship. And Brian, um, I shared the stage a bunch of times with Brian whenever Whitesnake plays in the area, I always jump on stage for a couple of songs and that's how I knew Brian. And um, I thought it would be great to have him guest on the album because, uh, like, like in your case, what you just mentioned, in my case, the same thing. Brian is one of my favorite drummers. He's amazing, yeah. musical and hard hitting drummer. He's, he's got this unusual combination of musicality and 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 still keeping it rock instead of you know, you know, we all know how thin that line is between um, making it too sophisticated or too blunt, you know, um, as a drummer. And, and Brian has got this amazing, perfect middle of, of musicality and, and hard-hitting rock in your face and groove, you know, that's another thing. I mean, a lot of rock drummers are fantastic, but they don't really groove. And Brian starts playing this simple thing, basically like, and it already groove, you know? You go, oh man, that guy. Yep. And so I was so lucky to find, find a drummer of Brian's caliber in Holland, of all countries, you know, we we have we have a country the size of a post stamp, and um, I found this amazing drummer and amazing bass player to join Vandenberg. So, uh, I mean, people wouldn't even would have a hard time hearing the difference between Brian and between Kuhn. Kuhn yeah. is actually a, a weird name. It's it's for American people, but it's spelled K O E N, and in America, and I know it's it's not a great word, you know. Uh, but that happens to be his name, so I suggested to him, you know, when we're in America, just change your name to Conrad, because that's where it's <laughs> an abbreviation from, you know, in Holland. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so let me, let me uh, last thing, because I'm almost, I'm out of time here. Um, I want to mention, too, to the audience, so you've got 10 new songs, uh, on the, well, nine new songs on this record, because you actually did a new version of Burning Heart included on the record, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was a, a, an unsuspected um, decision from me because uh, when the record company wanted to put out a press release announcing uh, Ronnie Romero being in Vandenberg and stuff and new lineup and all that stuff, and um, at the time, we hadn't recorded the record yet. And my manager said, well, a press release is just a press release, you know, uh, so can't we put any music with it? And then I suddenly remember that with the Moon King's rhythm section, we recorded bass, drums, and guitars, for Burning Heart to have it like as a spare for a possible bonus track for Japan or something, you know. So I suddenly remember that and I flew to Madrid where Ronnie lived and we recorded the vocal on it. So we had Burning Heart to put out with the press release and then 
when we finished the record, the record company and my manager said, well, Burning Heart turned out so great. Why don't we put it on a record? And I said, well, the last thing I want is to, to be this new Vandenberg um, band, a nostalgic type of thing. That, that's what I didn't want to do. You know, I wanted it to be uh, straight in your face, dynamic, ass-kicking rock band. And um, But then when I thought about it, I thought, well, the symbolic um, meaning of it would be uh, actually be kind of cool um, where you build a bridge between Vandenberg 1982 and Vandenberg 2020. So when I realized that and I heard the, um, the new version of Burning Heart in between the other songs, it sounded completely natural to me. And that's what made it easy to, to, to decide to, uh, to agree to put it on the album. Well, Adrian, it sounds great. I'm glad to have the band back. I'm glad that you're doing this. I hope that things get normal soon and we can see you on the road and see you here in America and see all the bands that we love touring. Oh, and man. Uh, uh, Yeah, I wish you the best of luck yeah. with the new album, 2020, uh, The Return of Vandenberg. And everybody, check it out wherever you get your music these days. And if you're still a CD fan like I am, I suggest it because you got the cool logo back and you got a nice booklet with photos and lyrics and great stuff in there. So I wish you all the best. Stay well. And hopefully I'll see you somewhere in the U.S. when, when things get back to normal. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I can't wait. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks very much. And we're, we're, we're all going to keep the rock flag flying proudly as far as I'm concerned. For sure. For sure. Take care. Best of luck. Okay. Thanks. You take care too, man. Take care. See you, Adrian. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Adrian Vandenberg. It was good to visit uh, with him for a bit. And thanks earlier to Bo Hill on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. Please be sure to follow me at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook. And of course, EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. If you become an all access member of my site, you can uh, hear my terrestrial radio show on demand anytime you want. Thanks to Katie Irizarry. She is the producer of the podcast. And hey, just figured I'd remind you about this too. I'm going to be doing a uh, master class in conjunction with Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, where I'm going to be doing a Zoom conversation about radio, TV, podcasting. If you're ever interested in broadcasting, Please be sure to join me for this special masterclass. Learn more on the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp website, or you can link to it right off the homepage of eddytrunk.com. You'll see the banner flash up there. Sign up. Space is extremely limited. A few slots are left. And join me for this very, very intimate masterclass about all things broadcasting. And looking forward to doing that speaking engagement. Hope you come on board for it if you have an interest in such things. I'll see you guys next Thursday. For another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, have a great week, everybody.
Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.